Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Yao. Leadership is harder than it looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. Haresh Tiwani is a Singaporean writer, director, actor, and co-founder of Ministry of Funny, one of Singapore's top comedy brands. To date, his videos have been viewed more than 26 million times and have received coverage by mainstream media around the world. He was talent scouted for the starring role in HBO's first comedy in Asia, Scent, as lead actor and associate producer. Harash has also co-created, co-wrote and starred in series produced for Hukyu and Mediacorp, earning awards from the Asia-wide Filmmakers Guild and the Asian Academy Creative Awards. Prior to becoming a content producer, Harash was part of the founding team of the airlines, Scoot, and was its head of e-commerce and distribution. Hiresh is currently a founder-in-residence of the 8th cohort of Entrepreneur First Singapore. EF is the world's leading talent investor and has created over 200 companies and raised more than $500 million in investments. Hiresh graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with a double degree in mechanical engineering and entrepreneurship. In his free time, he goes for long runs around Singapore. You can connect with him at www.linkedin.com slash in slash Harash Tilani. Hey Harash, as of the funny stuff over the years. Yeah, good to see you and thanks for having me, dude. So for those who have known you as you know, the guy who swims in the fountains of shopping malls and as the person who wears you know, army gear and does a PT on a bus. Who's the man behind the legend? So my name is Harish Tilani. Right now, I am neck deep in media. I never really started out when I was young ever thinking I would end up in media. And I always tell people like I stumbled into media. I was not the kid who wanted to perform for others, who wanted to be on stage, who wanted to be the center of attention at parties. Hell no. So I started off uh, being decent in math and science, thought I would become an engineer, did an engineering degree, worked for a big corporate and realized, holy crap, this is not what I want to do. Uh, saw the bubbling up of the internet and online content and took the plunge. And that's where I am now, after six years of entering the media space. What was it like when you first entered the media space? What were you like as a new employee and fresh graduate? So you mean when I first took the plunge away from my corporate life? I guess maybe I'll just rewind a bit. So when I graduated, I did mechanical engineering and a a second degree in entrepreneurship. And I came back to the corporate that sponsored my education. Because in Singapore, they have this thing, you know, uh, corporate says we'll pay for your education, come back and work for us. And I was bonded to them for four years. And before I started, I was like, oh shit. Because you know, when you go to university, your perspectives of everything changes. So I came back and I was dreading starting work in a corporate. But I had the bond and it was too big uh, an amount to pay off. So I started in the corporate world. I didn't enjoy the first two years because it was everything I had not wanted to work around. It was corporate, it was bureaucratic. I did learn a lot. 
I did learn a lot about how to manage your superiors, manage subordinates. But after two years, I found some way to be part of a startup that was funded by that big corporate, which was a low-cost carrier. So that was cool. Uh, and two and a half years of that. And then I took a plunge into the media. I essentially paired up with my current co-founder who started his own small production house. And it was not a big company or anything. It was just me and him saying, we're going to make one video a week for a year on YouTube and just see what happens. So it was very unglamorous. <laughs> it was just me and him working in a temporary office, just brainstorming ideas, going on the streets of Singapore, trying to make funny shit and putting it online and hoping for the best. <laughs> that was essentially our business plan. Make a video uh, a week for one year and see what happens. What was your parents' reaction about you leaving your steady corporate job for this risky thing? When I transitioned to that, that startup that was funded by the big MNC, things were actually going very well for me. I was climbing up the corporate ladder. So when I took the leap of faith, my family generally wasn't the happiest. But I think I had built up a reputation amongst my family of always doing what I want to do, even if it doesn't make sense to them. So you can argue that's a good thing, a bad thing. But to me, at least, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it anyway. You all are not happy. That's fine. And I just went ahead. La. So even up till now, to be honest, there's a lot of managing of expectations amongst family because it's hard to kind of explain to them what I do. The only time they are happy is when I appear in like the newspapers or on the TV. Doesn't matter what show it is. If I can get 5 million views on YouTube, doesn't mean shit. <laughs> doesn't mean shit. Yeah. So that, that will always continue la, as long as I'm in media or something creative. I remember my parents were also super down on me uh, setting my first business. And then I ended up in the Straits Times. And then my mom was like, cut out the whole newspaper article. I don't think she still understood what we were doing, but she just cut it out and she sent the link to her friends. And I was like, oh, my, thank you, Straits Times. Like, I mean, we're thankful for the publicity. But the best thing you did for me was you gave me approval from my mom. Yeah, exactly. Like, do not underestimate the power of mainstream media. Even though the mainstream media might not be the most evolved, the most progressive, generate the best content, but they do a lot for uh, appeasing parents, like, Asian parents. Yeah, I think we should all send in, like, the thank you letters. Like, thank you for making my mom love me again. You know? <laughs> so I think you've really come across as someone who was like a pioneer in the Singapore YouTube influence content media space, and you continue to lead and push things forward. You've had a chance to see many leaders uh, in the space. Could you tell us why leadership is important in this industry? Yeah, I mean, I think right now, the one thing that has come, come up over the past few years is the access to data. And what I mean by data, data in terms of how people view content, how people react to content, how people engage with content. So now, unfortunately, there's a tendency to think about future pieces of content based on how people react to historical pieces of content. That's what Netflix has been doing with their algorithm, just looking at whatever works and putting it all together with this secret sauce for the next big TV show. You see Hollywood studios doing that. You see even on YouTube with the trending page and all, it's always just about generating content that I feel sometimes it's a bit too safe. And why I think leadership is so damn important is because the only way barriers have been broken in media is by people taking a risk and making something that people look at, they're like, holy shit, what is that? Or even if it polarizes, I think that's the only way our content can evolve. That's the only way the stories will not be as generic as now they are seeming to trend towards. It does take a, a certain type of individual who I would refer to as a leader in the space to create content that might totally bomb and might totally fail. But that's the only way I think we can evolve. La. And I think it's so damn important because if everything is just controlled by algorithms, right, we won't see anything new. La. 
Who have been people that you feel represent that taste making and that boldness versus the algorithms? I would say, okay, in the media space on YouTube, I guess there is the one YouTuber who anyone who's been doing YouTube will know, uh, someone, someone called Casey Neistat. So he's always struck me. He's been doing YouTube since 2008 and he used to do videos one a week, but his turning point where he exponentially grew was I think in 2016 when he just decided that, you know what, I'm going to make a, a video every day and he was going to vlog his life. So to me, what he did beyond that literally elevated the standard of vlogs across YouTube to the point where people were trying to copy his style and all that, which I mean, it's, you can copy his style, but you can't copy his, his brilliance. And to me, that was someone who like, okay, he took a space that was familiar, that was saturated and totally elevated it in terms of production quality, storytelling, and he blew up. But it also elevated the game for everyone else. And you could see across the board, every prominent YouTuber, they also felt they had to elevate their game. So I thought that was really cool. Then you get people like the guy who created Black Mirror. So he he is a Charlie Brooker. Black Mirror, for those who are listening and are not aware of, first of all, get out from the rock you are living under. It is an anthology series that kind of looks at technology from a very dark perspective and kind of hypothesizes what an ugly side of technology could look like in future. Like ugly, scary. So I thought for him to create an anthology series like that was cool. But I think last year he did a, a choose your own adventure story with Netflix called Bandersnatch, which is essentially like those storybooks you read when you're young. You choose where you want to take the story and then you go to that page. So he did it with Netflix. And even though you could say that, oh, he got access to do that, even though a lot of people did it, I think he kind of changed the game because he did a very successful version of that, which is super hard. And to see that and to ex- actually experience it so seamlessly, I thought that was that was dope. La. That's something very cool in, in that space. And in terms of podcasts, given that this is a podcast, I mean, you get someone like Joe Rogan, who anyone listening to podcasts probably probably knows. And his his climb to the podcast God status that he has now has actually been very long. Uh, I think he started doing podcasts in 2010. And even though it wasn't he wasn't an overnight success, I really respect the fact that he kept to that format for years. And he just made what he wanted to make and just stayed a distance, even though podcasts had some... Uh, growth in 2010, 2011, then it died a slow death and now it's back up and he's been making podcasts since then. So I think if he were to just say, okay, podcast is dying, let me change formats, then he wouldn't reach the status where he is now. So I think anyone in media needs to appreciate that overnight successes are few and far between and you really need to stay the distance and be willing to risk failure if you want to create a brand that's unique. Yeah, definitely. And you shared a lot of the tough times for a lot of the creators out there and how they did that. Personally, how did you overcome the hurdles that you must have faced over time? Uh, a lot of crying to sleep and uh, avoiding friends. Because, I mean, yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. It, it hasn't been the easiest process. I've been doing this for six years. And I think on on one hand, when I look back, I also feel sometimes maybe I just should have done more trendy stuff. We would have grown bigger. We're not the biggest channel in Singapore by any means, but the challenges were sometimes, okay, if we wanted to do this video, it might be a risk. It might bomb. And on YouTube and Facebook and any platform you create content, if you have a shitty video, the algorithm kind of deprioritizes you for your next video. And if you keep doing that, you can literally get lost in the abyss. So to manage taking risks like that, uh, when even doing like a listicle video, which like the 10 types of this, 11 types of that. Statistically, it tends to get higher views. Just managing that is is not the easiest task. And also when we started pitching long form TV shows in Singapore and 
certain parts of Southeast Asia where it can be a bit more conservative, especially when you're working with national broadcasters, to kind of keep pitching the stories that maybe you want to tell versus what you think they would accept. Managing that is also a, a difficult thing. So how we overcame it, because we got rejected so many times for TV pitches until we finally made our TV show last year, which I can talk about later. But we had to kind of adapt our business because at the start, I always imagined myself having a team of writers, a team of producers, a team of everyone. But then once you reach critical mass, you need to take on every project, even the shitty ones, the ones you hate because you have all these mouths to feed. So we changed our business model to focus on, okay, it doesn't. we don't need to make 10 average shows. We just want to make one or two great shows a year. And how do we do that? So we really shrank down the size of our team to make our creative brain trust or our source the selling point. So, and, and, and incrementally charge more and more for our services. So instead of doing 10 projects of X value each, we just do two projects of 5X value. And that kind of helped us because now it's easier than ever to scale up and down for media projects. So by keeping the core team small, a project comes, we scale up. Like for our TV show, we had 76 people on our payroll at one time. And then after that, it just shrank back down all the way to the two of us. Awesome. Tell us more about this TV show. Why are you so excited about this long form? The first time we actually had some entry point into the TV industry was in 2016. So our first viral video was in January 2014. I left the corporate world in May 2014. We did that. Okay, make a video a week for one year from 14th May 2014, I believe. And we continued, we built a business around that in terms of making branded content for brands and agencies. And in 2015, November, we got a random email from HBO just saying, hey, we've seen your videos. Would you like to meet up and discuss? So we ended up meeting them. Uh, and after a few meetings, they told us that they were working on their first English comedy series in Asia. And they, were, they wanted to see if we'd be interested to help out. So they pitched some stuff to us, which was more us kind of being like production support. And then they said, okay, we're also thinking of casting you as the lead, which in my mind was crazy because I never really done proper acting. So outside I said, yeah, you know, let me check my schedule. So one thing led to another. And in the end, I did end up being casted as the lead. I was involved in the writing process as like the person who contextualizes the, the story by the Hollywood writers to Singapore. So me and my teammate for MOF, uh, we were associate producers and we saw the whole process of making a TV show and it blew my mind. And I was like, this is what I want to do. So we carried on making YouTube videos and we started just reading up and studying how to come up with stories, how to write treatments and pictures. And we got rejected so many times because of the nature of stories we wanted to tell. So to give some context of the nature of stories, the TV show we ended up making last year is a comedy about a guy who falls in love with a terrorist. So that kind of hopefully would help you guys understand why in Singapore, those sort of stories might not be the most appealing for networks. So we made that, we co-created it, we co-wrote it. My teammate directed it, I was a lead actor and we did the final edit. So literally we were there every step of the way. The pilot came out last year, it won an Asian Academy Creative Award and the full series came out earlier this year. Amazing, how do you feel now that it's out? I feel great, except that unfortunately in the media space where a lot of things aren't the most perfect. Network that we made it for uh, announced their liquidation in March this year. So, so that kind of put us in a pickle because their platform is down. Uh, I can't really speak much about the process because the liquidation process is going on. But it was just another sign that the media industry is due for some sort of innovation. Uh, and that was before COVID hit, uh, so, which was another big blow to the media industry. So I feel super proud that we made it. And I feel super confident on making another TV show in future, whatever it looks like in this post-COVID world. But so I'm, I've, I've bittersweet feelings about it. 
it's interesting that you mentioned the pandemic. You know, it's impacting so many industries from you know retail to hospitality, and other people are looking at it from how it's impacting Southeast Asia and Singapore from a geographic angle. How do you find you know the pandemic impacting media in Southeast Asia? Media, first and foremost, when lockdowns were happening over the world. So the, the production of any piece of content always involves people doing very unhygienic stuff in group settings. Sharing food, sharing drinks, sharing makeup, I don't know, like, like intimate scenes, fight scenes, sweat, it's just all over the place. So for smaller shoots, uh, like let's say a YouTuber who records in his room, people could still carry on produ- producing content. But the moment COVID hit like a, a turning point, uh, TV and film productions or even web series productions that have maybe like more than 10 people on set or even more than five people on set were immediately stopped around the world because you could not shoot. I think as the COVID situation improved in respective countries, production started to continue. But even then, the number of steps that need to be taken uh, are huge. You can't have as many people on set as you had previously. You can't share makeup kits. You need a health officer on set. Even in Singapore, the practices that were recommended by the media thought leaders was based on practices in other countries and everything is resulting in the cost of production going up. So that's one thing. A lot of the smaller players, like if you're a standalone YouTuber, you can still survive, but the mid-tier folks who have like a production house and focus on like medium quality productions that have people on set, they are getting massacred, unfortunately. The big boys, they can still have the budget to fly their cast and crew into some part of uh, a country and contain it there. So the cost is increasing. People are getting having their businesses impacted. But in terms of even storytelling, right? If you imagine scenes where there are 300 people in like a, a Game of Thrones, you know, battle with horses, those kind of things aren't going to happen anytime soon in the near future. Intimate scenes aren't going to happen unless your actors are already a couple. So the way stories are being told is being changed. I think as early as April, Hollywood writers who had finished the scripts of seasons that were about to be filmed of TV shows were having to rewrite scenes, keep them in smaller settings with less people on set because otherwise you can't go ahead and film. So the way stories are being told, who knows, in 2021, 2022, the shows we might see might be Avengers in in a house <laughs> because they, they can't fight Thanos on like this big battleground with like 7,000 people. The sitcoms you see, might not be anything that's outside. It might be very contained in spaces. So that is having a big impact. So everything about content is being changed from the way it's created to the way it's consumed to the way the business models, the production processes. I know the Mandalorian, for example, they started shooting in like this donut-shaped LCD screen where it projects 4K LED around. So you don't see the green screen, blue screen replacement anymore. They literally project what they ends up in the film. Wow. I definitely seen that myself as uh, someone who loves improv and stand up and does that as a hobby. Definitely seen that whole industry also get hammered because, you know, with the pandemic restrictions on, you know, audience and density, performers are also struggling uh, around how to be creative with the new restrictions. Yeah. And I mean, people yeah, like stand up comedians, performers, at least for people who create content like podcasts and all, you can still find a way around it. Like some of my friends who are in stand up comedy, they had their big shows planned this year. They, they're trying to do online stand up comedy, which is not the same. So unless there's a technology that kind of can convey emotion and laughter from group while on a Zoom call, it's going to be tough, man. It, it is going to be tough. 
It's definitely interesting to see the entire creative industry really go through that change, right? Like you said, so stand-up having to go online, production having to go online, uh, YouTubers and their houses and their casts and their staff and all of that. So much change is happening. Uh, is there any hope? Is there any light at the end of the tunnel? I think there is light at the end of a very long tunnel. So I think now it really is about adapting. Like, and I think as as cynical as I can be about a lot of things in media, I think the like for me, I've never really seen production quality or scale of the scene as something that is allows you to tell the best story. Like. In terms of another leader who I think has has been doing great during quarantine is Kevin James. You know the guy from King of Queens, the sitcom? So he was in King of Queens, which was a big sitcom in the early 2000s or late 90s. So he started a YouTube channel a few months ago and he does just short one-minute clips and it's basically mainly him or another actor. So he does this thing where he inserts himself seamlessly into the most iconic scenes from movies. And to me, of any mainstream celebrity that has gone online, he has done the best possible job of really embracing what it means to be a YouTuber. And all his scenes are actually shot with minimal crew. It's shot by this one production house that for real, was started by eight brothers. Like literally, the eight brothers run the production house. But if you watch the sh the, his videos, you can see how it's very COVID-friendly because it's filmed in his house, it's filmed in minimal, minimal sets. And, and I think there is a way to carry on, but it's just about adapting. Like. Look at the rise of TikTok, right? You see people creating content, it gets millions of views. And when you look at it, you don't understand why, but you can't deny the fact that it's getting a lot of traction. Like. And most TikTok videos are not the best produced in terms of production quality but there's still a way to create content that resonates with people around the world. In this day and age, there are so many people who still, you know, have a dream to become an influencer or a content creator. <laughs> I was actually recently reading an article just saying that one of the most popular occupations now for kids these days is to be an influence, like a YouTube star. So, you know, last time you used to be a scientist, soldier, etc. But now YouTube star is one of the top kid occupations. So, you know, I'm kind of curious for, maybe not the kids, but, you know, for whoever's thinking about that as a career or considering a journey similar to yours, you know, what advice would you give to them? I would say that, okay, anyone who wants to go into media and all, first of all, you need to realize that what you see on camera is not what actually, is not, is not consistent once the camera stops. Like. like, for example, I'm known as a guy who creates funny videos, right? But one thing that I routinely notice is that people are disappointed how unfunny I am in person when they meet me or like how low energy I am because in my videos I'm like what's up guys you know blah 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 so you need to understand that what you see on camera is still an edit and it's still a persona that people put online like it's, it doesn't mean it's inauthentic but it's just heightened and the other thing is like I think compared to maybe 20 years ago when people want to become an actor and all the the hardest part was almost like getting to a point where you can be seen by people because you want to appear on TV, you want to appear on ads, it's hard. Now, it's very easy to create content and put it out for the world to potentially see. But standing out from the millions of people around the world is not an easy thing. And for every overnight success you see, right, there are millions who are just, just never get there. So understand that it is, don't bet your, your life on this overnight success. If you want to do it, you need, you need to basically be in it for slightly longer than you might think like it's like starting starting a company right you know everyone thinks this one genius app idea is going to make them a millionaire i thought i was going to give myself one year to try making a video a week but it, after one year i was like there's no way you can build something in just one year and i think 
the one thing I always tell people is that, you know, that saying where, you know, find a job and you'll never work a day in your life. I think that's bullshit because I've seen it so many times where people start things they think they like and the moment they face some obstacle or hardship, right? They're like, you know what? Maybe this is not for me. No. So I think that advice is bullshit. Uh, I think regardless of what you think you love, if you'd make it a career, you will have days where you hate it. But that doesn't mean you should you should stop doing it. I think like anything is never easy building something great. I think there's one saying that implies that. And I think that's so true. If you think you like something, that just gives you a direction. It's not going to be an easy thing. And if you face hardship, you shouldn't just stop there. You, you need to understand that anyone who created anything of significance went through the same hardship. So for me in media, I enjoy reading biographies of the people I look up to and understand that even people who are world famous now for the longest time, they were just doing stand-up comedy in a Chinese restaurant with no one giving a shit when they were 35. Wow, that's going to be dark for the kids who are listening. <laughs> You know, I remember as a kid, I wanted to be a scientist because, you know, you know, it's like the glamour of a discovery, et cetera. And then I realized that the I enjoyed the structure and the problem solving part of it. But, you know, the, the day to day wasn't what kind of like gripped me, you know, for that. And I think that's actually great advice, you know, kind of like looking behind the the myth or the glamour of the role to the actual day to day. Yeah. I mean, just to give more context, I'm not saying that be scared of anything. I think if you have an inclination of what your calling might be, just give it a shot. That's the only way to find out. And if you face hardships and you really try and try, but you really feel, okay, it's not your thing, that's totally fine. That's totally fine. But just you have to try it to know whether or not it is something that you want to pursue. You, know, you earlier shared about you know how in the past you know there was a fight to even be in front of a camera for the old school and I think you're implying that today you can be on a camera called your mobile phone, right? So what do you think about that? Do you think people should just like go for it and just upload whatever they want and then see where it sticks? I mean, I would say, I think people do overshare. So, so I think certain people need to calm down and stop sharing. But if people who have an interest in creating media, so one thing I was guilty of at the start when I first went into the space was like, Every video we upload on YouTube needs to be perfect. Keep anything to make it perfect. But one thing I slowly came to terms with is that it's the whole concept behind startups also. Like, you know, you ship fast or you you just, what's what's the thing that was made popular? Like you just get your minimal vi- minimum viable product out and you just, you can't iterate content. But I think it is important to know that not everything needs to be perfect. And as long as you have something that is 90% there, just put it out and then move on to your next project. And for the longest time, even before we created our first video, it was always, okay, I don't feel it's right. I need more time and all that. And I think people who feel that they might want to be in media, the most important thing you can do is upload your first piece of content, be it your blog post, be it your Instagram post, be it your video. And how I think you should think about it is that if it's shit, no one will see it. So you don't even need to be worried about embarrassment. But if it's good, if you get some traction, then just work on your next one because people have very short memories. The one thing that people also might not realize about media, which I realized firsthand, is that I finally understand why people in media, you see a lot of cases of them being volatile or kind of having like volatile mental states because when we were making viral videos, I used to get recognized on the street. And I started noticing that if we don't make viral videos and I get recognized less, it was affecting my mood, dude. So I was like, oh shit. And the same thing, like when you when you receive like a, so a few viral videos, you upload a video that doesn't do well, it can affect your mood. La. So how did I get here? Well, what, what I'm saying is that I think 
uh, if you want to create content, don't worry about making shitty stuff because people forget very easily. You can have 10 shitty videos and one great video. More often than not, people will remember you by the great video. Lah. If you have 10 great videos, you make one shitty video. Yeah, certain instances, people might remember your worst ones. But there's always a way to just keep making content to to iterate rather than just have like two videos that you think are, are perfect. Lah. It's better to have 100 videos that are, of, of 100 videos, have 95 that are not that good, but five viral videos then have four videos one of which is viral if that makes any sense what are some other you know common myths and misconceptions that you've encountered in this space i think one thing that i came to realize is that you know anytime you google like most amazing scenes or most amazing lines in movies and all there's this notion that it was entirely crafted that everything fell in place but um, if you google you will often see that some amazing framing with the sunset and the clouds here. If you dig deep and listen to the director when they ask how they came up with it, right? If they're honest, you'll find countless examples of... I remember one... I can't remember what movie. I think it's a, the famous Taiwanese di director and it was a scene literally where there was a, a castle and some clouds moving and it was... The sun, sun was perfect. And people asked him, you know, how do you conceptualize that? He said, to be honest, you know, the sun was setting. Uh, we were losing light. We just had to do a wide shot. We couldn't zoom in. We put it there. We took it and it turned out to be an iconic scene. So the the one thing that I realized, so I, I studied engineering, right, which inherently trains you to think in a more structured way. And I realized that that whole notion of waiting for inspiration, right, is absolute bullshit. True, you might be lying in bed or taking a shower and you have a thought, but I think it's so much more important to keep thinking of creative ideas and that is the only way to think of an idea. So anyone who thinks that, okay, I can't be creative because I've never had an inspirational thought in my life. No, realize that most creatives go get to the point where they can think of creative ideas only through forcing themselves to think of creative stuff. I know Stephen King, for, the long, for as long as he's been a writer, every day he makes sure he writes 3,000 words. Every day. I even bought a book to understand the, create, the rituals of the most creative people in history. And the most common element was that they just continued to create. And it was through creating so much that once in a while you get a hit. And that whole notion of like, like yeah, you know, sitting under a tree and an apple falling on your head, having a genius idea rarely happens. How do you distress and unwind? When we were doing like videos and uh, having thankfully uh, more and more attention, I actually started to like just going on long runs by myself. I used to listen to music and podcasts, but then I realized, no, like, it's nice to get away from social media, partly because my life revolved around social media, but going for long-ass runs, like one hour, even if you're running at a snail's pace, but just working up a sweat and enjoying the run was one of the more consistent ways I found of de-stressing. What's your favorite run from your perspective? Oh, my favorite run. So in Singapore, I mean, I don't know how many of your listeners are from Singapore, but Singapore actually has a lot of nice places to run that are surprisingly scenic. So even when I went to Magritte Reservoir and I ran the, the 11K loop for the first time, I was surprised at how at certain points you can't even believe you're in Singapore. And then certain parts in, I think, near Alexandra or something, you get some really scenic areas. But of course, if you ask me what was my top run ever, uh, a few years ago, I actually took part in an ultra marathon in Iceland which was a 250-kilometer run over seven days where you carry your own equipment. And and the training for that was what made me realize, oh, shit, actually running and not worrying about how fast you're running can be very therapeutic. So 
if you've been to Iceland, if anyone has been to Iceland, it's a ridiculous landscape where over the course of seven days, there were certain times I was running beside glaciers, certain times I was running on a desert, certain times I was running amidst lush greenery. Unfortunately, I got injured halfway, so the second half of the run was the most painful runs I've ever done in my life. I couldn't really notice the landscape because I kept on looking at my feet. But the first half was really fun. I love that. Sounds like uh, describing uh, a lot of careers as well. You start out the first half and then it's great. And then, and then the second half, you're just limping and <laughs> it's getting through it. I think you mentioned something that's interesting, right? As one of the first few people who was like creating content, but also as a result, being super hyper immersed in social media. And then you talked about how having to have a hobby, a way to, to get yourself out of that space. And I think it feels like Everybody in the world is now in your shoes, right? Everybody has so much social media. There's like Facebook, YouTube, the latest social media uh, platforms. And I think there's a big conversation about how to have that balance. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, everyone needs to force themselves off social media. Um, I think for me, it's a bit more heightened because part of like my my work involves having like a Facebook tab on YouTube and, and Instagram. And I actually found it affecting my mood as well because it's the same thing you hear over and over again. Whatever you see on Facebook uh, and Instagram is just the best excerpts of people's lives. And when you see that on an unrealistic timescale, right, it kind of paints a different reality. And you get the whole FOMO, grass is greener kind of thing. So I think people need to actively unplug or maybe even (laughs) actively help their friends unplug because... Every time I unplug or I go from a run, yeah, you don't lose out. You know, the world carries on. The world, like, it, it's, not, it's not that bad a thing to, to unplug once in a while. But the problem is it's not the easiest thing to do, to do like, because these apps, you know, they are, they are configured to keep your attention, to retain your attention. So everybody needs to fight it. Like. And I say this coming from someone whose business is built on people engaging with our content. No, okay? Yeah, you watch, except for our videos. Our videos you can watch all night, but all other content, you know, just step away after like 30 minutes of browsing. Lots of people are always thinking about what's the next big platform, right? So, you know, they're thinking like, okay, I was on Facebook, and then I need to get on Instagram. Now I need to get on TikTok. And then there's all these new media platforms that are coming up. Yeah. What do you think about that? Like, you know, do you feel like it makes sense or do you feel like it's a bit too like hopscotch or is this the reality you got to march with those mediums? A bit of everything because that's something that I personally struggle with as well. Because when we started in 2014, YouTube was the place to go for videos. And then when Facebook decided, hey, you know, we want to compete in the video space and they started making videos a big priority and they had a shitty content ID system that didn't detect people uploading duplicate videos, we realized we needed to be on Facebook as well. Then when Instagram came up, we realized, oh shit, we need to be on Instagram. I'm not even on TikTok. I never went onto Snapchat. I do think if you are starting as a creator, you can benefit from having a presence on every platform. It's not the easiest thing to do, but I think if you are starting out, that can be helpful. Then once you start building a brand, you can be a little more selective. So, and, and that's why I would say anyone trying to create content, right? Make sure that whatever content you create does not stress you out, does not kill you, does not make you go crazy because the only way you can survive in this sort of environment is being comfortable creating content across all platforms. And the easiest way to create content that you're comfortable with is to do it in a way that is most natural to you. Because I've seen people try and, you know, make like, like just put on this persona online for different content platforms. And after a while you get burnt out because your whole life is an act. But the people who succeed and I think do the best job, they are just 
themselves on every platform. And that is, I think, the most sustainable. So I will willingly admit that I've never been the best at making sure that I'm always on the latest platform. I just make sure I'm on a few platforms because you never just want to be on one platform. If they decide to change the algorithm, change the way they operate, you can literally get screwed over. So, so that's, that's my take on it. And I think if people find being on too many platforms kind of taking away from being good at anyone, then you, you don't need to be on every platform. Because the last thing you want to be a, is a jack of all trades and a master of none. One thing I've noticed is that, you know, your trajectory of videos over time have begun to take on the tackling of, you know, social issues and societal topics that are of interest. And you also do that with humor and grace from my perspective. I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, why that arc, right? Because, you know, you know, you could continue, you know, swimming in Takashimaya fountain and, you know, I mean, that, that you know, I think, and I think that continues to be a, I think the willingness to do that and the bravery and audacity is still there, I think, in all your comedy today. But it's just interesting to see that, you know, it's almost becoming like a means to an end rather than the end in itself. I would say it's just an evolution of who me and my teammate as people. I think one logistical issue is that the reason why we stopped doing on-the-street videos is it was a, it was a, a blessing and a curse. The, the blessing was that we were getting bigger. The curse was that people started recognizing me. So the moment I approach them on, on the street or something, they're like, you know what, something's happening. There's some camera here. I'm like, no. Then, yeah, so it became harder to do that. But the bigger reason is because, yeah, like as you grow older, you also realize there are different things that you care about. And, and once we kind of had some validation, like, okay, our the way we create content resonates with certain demographic of people, then we started taking more risks. Because if you want to make a video about xenophobia or racism or even counterterrorism, there is the risk of not something that is wholesome. But we knew that, okay, there, there is something we are getting right and let's just slowly push towards that because that's been stuff that we have always cared about. And I think the older you get, the more cognizant you get of how the world around you affects the pe- yourself, the people around you, and you start thinking about the future of the world and you start having different thoughts that you might have when you were 25. From the start, I think why we started carving out a different niche is because when I started doing YouTube, I was 30 and my teammate was 32, which is way older than every other YouTuber out there that we met. And we realized, okay, there's no way we are as cool as them. There's no way we are as good looking as them. There's no way we're as hip as them. Let's just try and do stuff that maybe differentiates us from them. And I think anyone would agree the person they are when they're 30 is very different from the person they are when they're 21. So we started focusing on that. Let's be willing to focus on issues that were a little more risque, a little more provocative, but would appeal to the older demographic. You know, I think Singapore society is going through changes, right? And I think you're talking about those themes, right? So you said xenophobia was one. You know, you talk about, you know, identity in terms of racial and cultural affiliations. What do you think about those trends? You know, you look at the next, you know, 10 years and so, so forth. What's your hopes and fears? So, I mean, on one hand, I am very hopeful because people seem to be caring a lot about stuff more so than they used to be. I think it's a whole bunch of factors, the access to information, the fact that now people with different thoughts can find people who actually agree with them instead of being the outcast within their own social circles. But on the other hand, what I'm genuinely afraid of is the increasing rise of people living in their own echo chambers. And it's it's one thing that has influenced the type of content we create, the, the videos we create, the podcasts we make. Because now every issue that is potentially controversial or taboo immediately polarizes people. 
and it's always us against them. And and I think that's a very scary thought. La. The reason we started our podcast called Yala But, which is where me and my teammate purposely try and force ourselves to take opposing views and talk it out, is because everything you see online, you can see someone post this one view, get like a thousand shares, and people like loving his comments, uh, loving and like commenting lovingly, but then you get the people who hate on the comments and just keep shitting on it and someone will post another post about this person and that would have a thousand shares and it just feels like, oh my God, what is happening? So I am genuinely worried about that trend. And, but I would say overwhelmingly, I'm, I'm still more encouraged because I think people are also realizing, oh shit, echo chambers exist. The importance of finding alternative viewpoints and checking your own beliefs and perspectives and making sure there's a balance. If you had a time machine to go back 10 years, what advice would you give to yourself back then? Dude, I, I would totally know what sort of videos I should make to become the biggest YouTuber in the world. I would come up with like the cinnamon challenge beforehand, whatever stupid challenges there have been there, and I'll be the one to start it. The, what was the Harlem Shake, you know? Dude, you can, <laughs> I would download every piece of every viral video. No, but I'm just kidding. Like. I would say 10 years ago was when I was one year into my corporate life. I think going through that corporate life also shaped how I saw the pursuit of entrepreneurship or the pursuit of building your own thing because you kind of realize what you don't like and what you like. So I would tell myself that instead of sometimes not going to one extreme and trying something out, because as much as taking a leap of faith or something I'm very proud of, there were things that I, I myself shied away from because they were a little too extreme or too out there. And there's always this notion like, okay, what's the point? You know, it feels like one small step towards something that you might never achieve. Like, let's say stand-up comedy. For the longest time, I thought, you know, I should do stand-up comedy. And this year, I, I kid you not, when our TV show was ending, I was like, you know what? This is the year I'm going to try stand-up comedy. And then what? Stand-up comedy around the world shut down. So I would tell myself that I think the, the best way to see life is like, like as, as you know, like, like a Tarzan going from tree to tree. And when you start off, you're just swinging from extreme to extreme but as you get older the the amount you swing will get less and less like and i think that is the only way to find out what you really want to do so instead of assuming that life is a to b just a straight line path no life is always going to be you swing to one extreme you realize oh shit that's not what i like then you swing to another extreme like, oh shit that's not what i like but the, each oscillation is narrow and narrow and hopefully in 10 15 years down the road you come to what you really like, like. but you must be willing to swim from swing from extreme to extreme and just try shit out Awesome. Thank you so much, Harish.